I have injured myself. My back is significantly paining me, so I would ask for your prayers, and I think I'll be fine on this stool. Forgive me for playing the part of a Jewish rabbi and seating myself. <laughs> Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for the precious blood of Christ that washes away all our sin. And Lord, we praise you for the way that you prepared for the coming of the Lord Jesus, for the way that you orchestrated the events of the Passover and Israel's exodus from Egypt. Lord, we pray that you would cause us to exult in Christ with a joy unspeakable and full of glory. We pray that you would cause us to be eager to flee into the place where the blood covers us. And Lord, I pray that you would cause us to feel how foolish it is to reject your word, how foolish it is to resist what the prophet declares. Lord, would you bring conviction in this room this morning? Would you bring about conversion? Lord, would you do the miracle in some hearts this morning that need you? Would you take out the heart of stone and put in a living heart of flesh? And Father, for some who have professed faith and are walking with you, would you convince them that there is no salvation to be had where the destroyer will walk his heavy tread? Would you convince them that there's no joy, no pleasure in the tents of wickedness? Lord, convince us that the way of holiness is the way of happiness. Convince us that life is found where you are. And then, Lord, we pray that you would cause us to celebrate the feast with purity, with gladness, with full rejoicing as we trust in Christ. We ask all this in his name. Amen. If you were here in October, you would have heard Jonathan Algren share his testimony. Is Jonathan in the room? There he is back there, yeah. And Jonathan talked about how, as a young man, he received these Boys Life magazines. And in the Boys Life magazines were these, these sort of comic book cartoon presentations of the exodus from Egypt. And he, he looked at that story and it arrested his attention, but he didn't know what it meant until a couple of years later, he was at church and uh, there was a, a lady teaching him. And, you know, there's so much that's instructive about the story that I'm telling you right now. Number one, for, for those of you who believe, we want to be plugged into the life of the body to hear encouraging testimonies like this when they happen. Number two, for those of us who believe, this brother... Uh, who, is, who is here training for ministry. He's already served a church as a pastor. This brother came to believe the gospel through the ministry of a lady working with children. So, you know, we often, J.O. often says, if you want to change the world, serve in the nursery. Well, here's, here's a picture of what we're talking about. And so this lady, she asks, Jonathan is, is inquiring about the gospel. And the lady asked if she knew the story of the Passover, and if, if Jonathan knew the story of the Passover and the Exodus from Egypt. And he said, yes, I know that story. 
And she began to talk to him about how in the same way that the lamb's blood was put on the lintels and the doorposts of the household, households of the Israelites so that their firstborn children would not die when the destroyer passed through, so also the blood of Christ covers those who have repented of their sin and trusted in Christ, and he dies for them in the same way that the Passover lamb dies for the firstborn of Israel. And the Lord saved him. That's, that's what we're looking at here this morning. So I would invite you to open to Exodus chapter 12, and we're actually going to start at the end, and then we're actually going to go back into chapter 11, and, and I think all of this will hopefully make much more sense to you when we're done than it does perhaps right now. Uh, this passage is phenomenal. And in view of the passage that, that uh, Matt D'Amico just read from John 19, and in view of the story that I've just told you about Jonathan, I want to start with Exodus chapter 12 in verses 40 through 51. So we read here in verse 40, the time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. And I would just draw your attention to the fact that uh, the hosts of the Lord that are mentioned there in verse 40 are going to be mentioned again at the end of verse 51 when it says, The Lord brought out the people of Egypt, uh, uh, the Lord brought the people of Egypt out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. And I think, you know, what we're going to see here is a paneled uh, stair step uh, construction. And, um, you know, this is the point where someone who's been for, here for a while leans over to his neighbor and he says, he's going to say it's a chiasm. And, and that's exactly right. That's exactly right. A chiasm is, a, is a, a, a situation where you start one place, you work toward the middle, and then you, start back, you work back out to the place where you started. And it looks like the Greek letter chi, which looks like an X. So they were 430 years in Egypt. And then all the hosts went out, verse 42. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. What this is talking about is what we're going to read in the burden, the body of Exodus 12, when we see the way that, that Israel, they ate the Passover feast on the night that the destroyer passed through the land of Egypt. And, you know, if you're a believer and, and you trust what Moses says and you've celebrated the Passover and you've put the blood on the on the doorpost and the lintel, you, you believe, you take it by faith that something terrible is going to be happening outside. And in, and in view of what Moses says, you're in your home waiting until you hear the great cry, the wailing that you know is going to come. That's what's being described right here. It was, verse 42, it was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. So in view of what happens at the Passover, a feast is instituted, and, and that's what the last part of that verse describes. Um, verses 43 through 45 are basically going to make the point that no uncircumcised foreigners can eat of the Passover. And then verses 48 and 49 are going to tell you that anyone who wants to eat of the Passover needs to be circumcised, okay? So you get hosts hosts, circumcision, circumcision. Okay, so let's look at verses 43 through 44. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, 
But every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. So you've got to be circumcised. Now, uh, and then verse 45, no foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. Now skip down to verse 48. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. This is telling us that the only people who can partake of the Passover are people who have been circumcised. And there is a new covenant analog to all of this. So in the old covenant, Israel, they were enslaved in Egypt, and by means of the the death of the Passover lamb, the Lord redeemed them from slavery in Egypt. In the new covenant, we were slaves of sin, and Christ's death on the cross redeems us from that slavery and frees us to serve the Lord in the same way that the Passover is freeing Israel to serve the Lord. Well, in the same way that you have to be circumcised to uh, partake of the Passover, you have to be born again in order to partake of the Lord's Supper. The New Testament in Colossians 2 does not equate circumcision with baptism. The New Testament equates circumcision with the new birth. He says, we were dead in the uncircumcision of our flesh, and then we were made alive through the circumcision not made with hands. Paul says this in Colossians 2, verses 13 through 16 or so. So the, the, all those paedo-baptists, they have it wrong. Circumcision is not paralleled by baptism. Circumcision is paralleled by the new birth. And so in the same way that only circumcised people can partake of the Passover, only born-again people, only people who have had their hearts changed on the inside by the life-giving work of the Holy Spirit can partake of the Lord's Supper. You know, if Paul wanted to parallel Uh, baptism with circumcision, he should say something like this in 1 Corinthians 10. He should say, we were all uh, circumcised by baptism. But that's not what he says. He doesn't parallel circumcision with baptism. In fact, he parallels baptism with the crossing of of the Red Sea and with the being led by the cloud. 1 Corinthians 10, we were all baptized, or they were all, speaking of Israel, they were all baptized into the cloud and in the sea. So Paul locates uh, baptism, its analog, its Old Testament precursor, in the crossing of the Red Sea and the being led by the pillar of fire and cloud, not with the experience of circumcision. I will say this, though, about circumcision. Circumcision points to the the acceptance of the covenant that God made with Abraham. And, you know, it's, it's interesting here. In, in this passage, um, we, we're getting the, this call for the Israelites to be circumcised in the context of the destroyer having passed through Egypt at night. And that might remind you of what we saw back in Exodus 4, where Moses stops at a lodging place on the way, and the Lord stood before him to put him to death that night. And then Zipporah circumcised their sons, and, and then uh, Zipporah touches the foreskin 
to Moses' feet. And that same word for touch is going to be used of the touching of the lamb's blood on the doorpost and the lintel. So I think Moses wants to draw a parallel between what happens with Moses and the circumcision and the touching of his feet with the blood and what happens with Israel and the touching of the doorposts with the blood. So at the center of this, this passage here in Exodus 12, 40 through 51, look at verses 47 and 48, uh, sorry, 46 and 47. Exodus 12, 46, it shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside. And you shall not break any of its bones. This is what John says is fulfilled in John 19 when they don't break the the legs of Jesus as he's being crucified. Now John is not claiming that Moses was looking down through the corridor of time and predicting that the Messiah would not have his bones broken on the cross. No, John is saying... Everything that was typified in the Passover at the Exodus is fulfilled in the death of Christ on the cross. You may have noticed also that in Exodus 12, we're going to see them take a hyssop branch and dip it in the blood of the Passover lamb. And then that hyssop branch is going to be used to touch the the doorposts and the lintel. And they gave Jesus that sour wine. Wine often connotes blood in the Bible. They gave Jesus that sour wine on a branch of hyssop. And so I think John means for his audience to understand that these elements of the Exodus and the Passover come to their fulfillment in Christ. Okay, now let's look back. And what I'm going to do here is I'm going to suggest to you that up to this point in John 12, to John 12, 39, and going all the way back to the beginning of chapter 11, we have another wide-angle chiastic structure. And we're going to work... From the, from the ends down to the center, okay? So um, 11.1, uh, Exodus 11.1, the Lord said to Moses, Yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. The verb that's translated drive there in 11.1 is the same verb that appears in 12.39, where we read, And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt. Same verb, uh, drive, in 11.1. And could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. Okay, so 11.1, they're driven out. And then 12.39, they're driven out. And maybe this makes you think, as I think it should, of Exodus 6.1. Do you remember what the Lord said there? The Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will, same verb, drive them out of his land. You know, at the time when Moses announces that, Pharaoh is not just going to send us out, Pharaoh is going to drive us out. That might have sounded crazy. That might have sounded like one of those things that you hear a prophet say and you think to yourself, oh yeah, right, right. Our slave master, the king of the land who is profiting so much from our labor is going to drive us. Sure, right, right, yeah, I bet, Moses. Let's see if that happens. Don't ever bet against the word of God. Don't ever bet against what the prophet has said will come to pass. 
the word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. What the Lord announced in Exodus 6.1 is exactly what happens in Exodus 12.39. Pharaoh drives them out. Pharaoh can't get rid of them quickly enough. Next, uh, we have in 11, 2 and 3, and 12, 35 and 38, something that was also anticipated earlier in the book of Exodus. You don't have to turn there, but all the way back in um, chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, Moses had announced, the Lord had announced through Moses, I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Now listen to Exodus 11, verses 2 and 3. The Lord tells Moses, Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. I mean, can you imagine this? Hey, I'd like for you to give me your money. (laughs) I'd like for you to give me your finest clothing. And they do it. They cough up. I mean, this is astonishing that the Egyptians would do this. The Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, verse 3. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. You know, Moses has been raising that staff, and these plagues have been falling, and the Egyptians have caught on. That guy's really important. That guy has access to significant power. The Egyptians have caught on, but Pharaoh is not ready to yield. And now look over at Uh, The corresponding passage in 12, 35 through 38. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And here it is again. The Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. The verses that follow 37 and 38 just tell us where they went. So I'm going to pass over those. And and I want to apply this in this way. I want you to to consider the words of Proverbs 13.22. Listen listen to this statement. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Now, in the Proverbs, a good man is somebody who has the Torah written on his heart, Proverbs 3, which sounds a lot like Jeremiah 31, right? I will put my law within them, and I will write it on his heart. So a good man is somebody that's experienced the circumcision of the heart, the new birth. And a good man is someone who trusts in the Lord and lives for the Lord, not for stuff. And and look at what it says. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. The sinner's wealth, all the wealth of Egypt... And I suspect that there were Egyptians doing exactly what so many Americans do, thinking, if I can just get a little more, if I can just unch that salary up a little higher, if I can just work a little harder, if I can just have that car that's just a little bit nicer than the one that I've got, if, if, if I just get a little bit more property, a little bit more land where my house is, if, my, if I can just make my clothing one step higher on the fashion meter, Whatever the case may be, listen to this statement. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 26. Solomon says really the same thing again. 
to the one who pleases him. God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. To the sinner, he gives the business of gathering and collecting just to give it over to the one who pleases God. I think that in both of these places, Solomon is probably thinking of the plundering of Egypt. Now, we should consider what Israel did with the plunder of Egypt. They didn't just say, hey, look at us, we're the rich people now. That was not what they did. They came out to Mount Sinai, and Moses says, it's time to make freewill offerings for the building of the tabernacle. And the people give so much of the plunder of Egypt that Moses finally has to say, stop it. We've got enough. And, and from that I say this. The things of earth are for the worship of the Lord. Your stuff, you should make sure that you use your salary, your luxuries, your, even your recreation, anything that God graciously blesses you with. And, and our possessions and and homes and all these things. This is God's kindness to us. We should make sure that we're using these things for the worship of the Lord, for the service of the Lord, for the goodness of the kingdom. Don't live for vanity. Don't be those who all that's given to you is the business of gathering and collecting to give it up because you have no satisfaction in it. And if you, if you don't know God, if you don't walk with God, you will never have satisfaction in your stuff or in your, your bank accounts. Sizable though they may be, it will never be enough. So the plundering of Egypt. Next, we have uh, this statement in 11, 4 through 8 of what's going to happen on the night of the Passover. And then it's narrated in the corresponding passage. So there, there's several things that you're going you're gonna to hear here as I read 11, 4 through 8. You're gonna read, and, and all of this is going to be repeated in 12, 39 through 44. It's going to happen at midnight. The firstborn are going to die. There's going to be a great cry, and Israel's going to go out. So listen to, listen to chapter 11, verses 4 through 8. Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight... I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. So it's going to be universal, all the people of Egypt, and all their livestock. Verse 6, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again, but not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Israel, Egypt and Israel. Verse 8, And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that I will go out. And, and Moses has announced this to Pharaoh in the context of chapter 11. And he makes the announcement, and then finally, at the end of verse 8, he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. And that was after Pharaoh had said in 10, uh, 28 and 29, on the day you see my face again, you shall die. You'll never see my face again. And, and Moses leaves in a huff after making this announcement. Now look at the corresponding passage in chapter 12, 
beginning in verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. And then the universality of, of it is communicated again from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt. And you can imagine the Israelites huddled in their homes. They're going to be told when we look at the instructions that they are not to go outside the doors of their households. You can imagine them huddled in their homes waiting and waiting. And they don't, I don't think they had clocks, but you know, you can imagine the, the second hand ticking on the clock and, and they're just anticipating. And then there it is, the great cry. For there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and set up. Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. What the Egyptians dealt with that night is like what the Housleys used to tell us about. Before the gospel went to that tribe in Papua New Guinea, and they would talk before they were able to communicate to them the hope of Christ. They would talk about how when someone died, the people would utter the death wail. And it was like nothing they had ever heard. It was a sadness like they had never heard sadness because these people had no hope of a resurrection. These people, when their, when their children died, it was just death all the way down. There, there was no hope that the child would be buried to, to anticipate a resurrection from the dead. It was simply over and mourning. Last night, I got a, a call from a, a dear friend of mine from years ago whose brother, the eldest son in the family, committed suicide this past August. And this friend of mine testified what this has done to his parents. His parents are just absolutely devastated. His, the, guy's, the, the, the guy was about 40 years old. His widow is understandably devastated. He leaves behind children. They are, they are undone. They don't understand why their father has died. And I suspect that if we... If we were to say to my friend's father, what would you not do to preserve the life of your firstborn son? I think he would say nothing. I would do anything to preserve the life of my firstborn son. There's one thing that Pharaoh wouldn't do. Pharaoh refused to submit to the Lord. And Moses warned him. Exodus 4 Exodus 4, 22 and 23, you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, the nation. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And Pharaoh refused. Pharaoh refused to let Israel go at the cost of... I suspect 
that once it happened, if, if we were to have the opportunity to say, say to Pharaoh, was it worth it? I don't think he would even need to answer. Could never be worth it. And you know, this is an outworking, ultimately, of Genesis 12.3. Genesis 12.3, the Lord said to Abram, I will bless those who bless you. And you know, the Pharaoh that when Joseph went down into Egypt at the end of the book of Genesis, that, that Joseph and that Pharaoh, they had a productive relationship. That Pharaoh blessed Abraham by showing kindness to Joseph and by, by basically saying to Joseph, whatever you want from your brothers, you can ha- for your brothers, you can have it. So that Pharaoh blessed Joseph and thereby blessed Abraham. And as a result, everything prospered under Joseph. The Lord blessed him on account of Joseph in fulfillment of the blessing of Abraham. Not this Pharaoh. This Pharaoh got the rest of Genesis 12.3. The rest of Genesis 12.3 Him who dishonors you, I will curse. So you can have blessing or you can have cursing. And what's the difference? Do you you side with Abraham or do you side with the serpent? Do you bless the one whom the Lord has said he will bless? Or do you dishonor the one that the Lord blesses? And, And really what this comes down to today is what you do with Jesus. How are you going to respond to Jesus? Are you prepared to bless Abraham by blessing Jesus, by trusting in him, hoping in him, giving yourself to him, and and fleeing to the place where the blood covers you? Are are you going to respond that way? If you respond that way, you'll get that first part of Ecclesiastes 2.26, to the one who pleases him. The Lord gives wisdom and joy. You reject him. And you're going the way of Pharaoh. And and it's not worth it. There is nothing in the world worth it. So at this point, as we consider these two narratives where the the midnight cry is announced and then it happens, I I would just simply ask you, what side are you on? Are, Are you with Israel and with those who bless Abraham? Are you with the Christians who hope in Christ? Or are you among those who are going to come under the righteous wrath of God? The Lord promises this is how the judgment's going to fall. And it happens. You can, it's, it's testified to in the, in the scriptures to convince us. If he says he's going to judge, he's going to judge. So are you placing yourself with those who are going to be judged by rejecting the Lord Jesus, by refusing to turn away from your sin, by continuing to tell yourself, this time I'll find satisfaction here. This time, as I cultivate my fantasies or as I, as I cover up my lies or as I, as I nurse my grudge, harbor my sin, whatever form it takes in your life, this time it's going to work. It's never going. It will never lead you to the Garden of Eden. Your sins will not take you to heaven. They will take you to hell. Now the center of this whole unit comes in two big chunks. And they, they begin and end the same way. Um, so if you look at uh, chapter 12, verse 2, we read, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. And then look at verse 14. This day shall be for you a memorial day. Those two statements 
open these two units. And the ending statements of these two units, um, there's one, they, they, what they do is they talk about the Passover. So at the end of verse 11 of chapter 12, it is the Lord's Passover. And then in verse 13, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And then similarly, at the end of the next unit, down in verse 27, you shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel. Okay, so these two big chunks of text, they open with a this month or this day statement, and they close with a statement about the Lord passing over, and then they're, they're surrounded, they're bracketed by 12.1 and 12.28. So if you look at 12.1, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, in the land of Egypt, and then you look at 12.28, then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. So the, the Lord speaking to Moses and Aaron uh, opens, in, opens it in 12.1, closes it in 12.8. And what we have in these two big chunks of text are instructions about the Passover. So let's look at the first unit starting in verse 3 of chapter 12. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take, according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now, let me just pause here and say, um, these instructions are given at the time of the Passover, and we're not going to get the book of Leviticus until the people come out of Egypt and get out to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, the Lord is going to give them the instructions of the book of Leviticus. But a lot of what's said here is going to correspond to the sacrifices that are going to be um, stipulated in the book of Leviticus. And so what's going on at this sacrifice is like an initial sacrifice that accomplishes atonement for sin, thereby delivering from death by bringing about cleansing of the people and consecration. And all of those terms are important. When, when we trust in Christ, it's like we're set apart for him. We're, we're consecrated to his service. When we trust in Christ, we are cleansed. 1 John 1, 9. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we trust in Christ, we are given life out of death. We're delivered from the death that would otherwise fall on us, just as Israel, their firstborn, all their firstborn children and the firstborn of their livestock are going to be delivered from death. And finally, atonement is made so that you're right with God. This is what's available to Israel. This is what's available to Christians only with us. It's better. It's better because Hebrews tells us that Christ has inaugurated the new covenant, which is a better covenant. And, and it's a covenant that fulfills the one that, that this Passover meal was part of. So continuing with the instructions, um, there in verse 6 of chapter 12, you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. The bitter herbs probably recall their bitter slavery. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw 
or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. Uh, this is like the sacrifices in Leviticus where they're going to, they're going to kill the, the sacrificial animal, they're going to drain its blood, and then they're, they're going to put it over the fire. They're not going to eat it raw, and they're not going to boil it in water or anything else. They're going to, they're going to roast the sacrifice. Verse 10, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn because it's holy. This is not about provisions. This is about devotion and consecration to the Lord. And then verse 11, in this manner you shall eat it. With your belt fastened, literally your loins girded. And, And this language is picked up by Peter when he says in 1 Peter 1, Um, gird up the loins of your mind. Peter is saying, you are like the Israelites being redeemed at the Exodus, only what you gird up is not your loins, you need to gird up your brain. You need to gird up your thoughts and be ready. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet. In Israelite homes, when they were home and not out working, they they would not gird up their loins, the the robes would flow freely. And they would leave the, the shoes at the door. They would not wear the shoes in the house. But, but this night, the loins are girded, the, the sandals are on the feet, and the staff is in the hand. The staff that outside, among the flock, or, or whatever, you use for various things. But now, at the table, you got your staff in your hand because you're ready to go. By faith, believing what the prophet has said. You gird up your loins, you put your sandals on your feet, you hold that staff at your, in your hand at the dinner table because you believe that this night we're going out. This night we're on the march because of what the Lord is going to do. The Lord hasn't done it yet. The destroyer hasn't passed through Egypt yet. And so they're doing this on faith. Um, did, you, did you hear those beautiful words of Isaiah? Isaiah is saying there's going to be a new exodus the passage that was read in Isaiah 52, and he says, this time you shall not go out in haste. But it will be just like it was at at the exodus from Egypt. The Lord your God shall go before you and be your rear God. What a promise. What a promise that belongs to us, that the living God goes before us and is our rear guard. I mean, how could we not respond as Paul does? Who can separate us from the love of God? If God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 12, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. I think that the Lord is responding to Pharaoh back in Exodus 5.1 saying, Who is Yahweh, Moses? I've got all my gods around me that protect Egypt. This Yahweh says I should let the people go. Who is Yahweh? And all the dead firstborn would be like a slain army on the battlefield. And to defeat the army is to defeat the gods. And that's what the Lord is announcing here. By striking down the firstborn of Egypt, I am defeating the gods of Egypt. And then he says, I am Yahweh. There's comfort here for us. There's comfort here if, you know, if, you've been, if you've been wronged. You know how you're able to say, I'm not going to take vengeance. I'm going to leave room for God's wrath. You trust that he is Yahweh. I mean, that poor, that poor widow 
is dealing with this righteous indignation that her husband has abandoned her and left her to raise these poor children alone. But she, she, she needs to hope in the Lord. She needs to say, he is the Lord, he will do vengeance. She needs that. That's where her comfort is going to come. Verse 13, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. I'm going to translate this into new covenant terms. When I see that someone trusts in Christ. And I'm not just talking about saying, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. When there's a life that testifies that the miracle has happened. When, when what somebody says with their mouth is also reflected in what they do. So you say, yes, I trust in Jesus, and then you live like it. And that includes when you blow it, you acknowledge, I blew it. I've blown it again and again. I keep blowing it. Lord, help me to stop blowing it. And then maybe you get with a brother or sister and you say, I got this area where I keep blowing it, and I need you to help me here. And you'll get help. You'll get help. But if you, if you repent and you trust... Revelation 7 says of, of those who are worshiping the Father in heaven, it says they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And it's talking about Jesus. It's talking about Jesus, the Lamb of God. That's our first set of instructions. Second set of instructions, starting in verse 14, which I've read. So I'm going to go to verse 15. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. So this is directed not at the initial celebration of the Passover on the night of the Exodus. This is directed at the future celebration of the feast. Because he, at, the, at the initial Exodus... They didn't have time to let the leaven work through the bread because they were leaving Egypt in haste. So in the future, when they celebrate this, they remove the leaven from their homes. And notice what it says there. Anyone that eats leaven, in verse 15, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Why? Because they're doing what's forbidden. And they're disregarding the celebration of God's salvation. This would be like, this would be equivalent of not partaking of the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. That person is to be put out. Unrepentant people are to be cut off from the congregation. And I think this is what sets Paul up to use leaven as a symbol of sin, as he does in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, a symbol of unrepentant sin that is to be removed so that the feast can be celebrated. And the feast that Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 5 is the Lord's Supper. I'm pointing at the table. We don't have the elements on the table. They're out there on that back table uh, in the little, you know, space age, whatever, uh, things that we've got. Um, the reason we say only baptized believers who are repenting of all known sin can partake of that feast with us is because of what we're reading right here. It's, 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 it's what we're doing is fulfilling the celebration of the Passover, which, by the way, is also why we don't celebrate the Passover. We don't celebrate the, I mean, if you think that's cool and it's neat and, and it's an experience, fine, but it's not to be an act of worship. The act of worship is fulfilled in us partaking of the Lord's Supper. Verse 16, on the first day, 
You shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. Now, I want to skip down to what we see when we read in verse 26. When your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You see what's happening here? As the parents engage in worship, the children are expected to see it. And the way that the parents are worshiping is designed to prompt the children to ask, why do you do this? What does this mean? So there's, there's instruction that's going to happen. There's a passing of the faith to the rising generation that's going to happen. So I say to the parents in the room, it's important for you to worship. It's important for your children to see you worshiping. And I think if the kids don't ask, I would encourage you to just go ahead and tell them. This is why we do this. We do this because nothing matters more to us than Jesus. We do this because God has saved us in his great mercy. You shall say in verse 27, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck down the Egyptians but spared our houses. And then look at the end of verse 27. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. If your child's life was at stake, what would you not do? What would you not do to save the life of your firstborn son? And I would also ask you, is it worth it to resist the Holy Spirit? You know what I'm talking about. The Spirit gently communicates to you, you shouldn't be doing that. Don't walk in that way. Is it worth it? Is it worth it to seek your own whether it's your own glory or your own pleasure, is it your own win in the argument? Is it worth it? Has it ever brought you what you seek? And finally, I would ask, is the Lord going to pass over you? Have you washed your robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb? A few weeks ago, I was listening to a sermon by my friend, Dane Ortland, and he said, he said, if you're here this morning and you're hearing the promises of God and you're not embracing them as your own, he said, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? We're about to sing these words. Now he has come to make a way and God himself has paid the price. That all who trust in him today find healing in his sacrifice. If you're here this morning and you came into this room not identifying as a Christian, let me urge you to recognize that God himself in Christ has paid the price. And he has made it so that you can be saved he has made it so that the destroyer will pass over where you are, so that the judgment will not fall on you. 
Won't you turn to him? Won't you? It, it, it does, it's not complicated. All you have to do is just cry out and say, Lord, save me. I know I'm a sinner. I know that you created me. I know that Christ died to pay the penalty for sin. Please save me. Make my heart new. Wash me clean. Make me right with you. Let's pray. Father, we know the story of what Israel is going to do. Having been redeemed from slavery by the blood of the Lamb, they're going to go out into the wilderness and they're going to grumble. And Lord, the Apostle Paul tells us that these things were written for our instruction. And we pray that through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we would have hope. Lord, we don't want to be those who have experienced all the glory of your mercy, all the wonder of your power, and then grumble. Lord, make us those who sing your praise with everything in us. And Lord, I do pray for those who need you. I pray that you would convince them that they need you. I pray that you would do this in a way that they find it irresistible. I pray, Lord, that you would overcome every one of their objections. I pray that you would break down every aspect of their resistance. I pray that you'd put them on their knees before you, the living God, that like Israel, they might bow their heads and worship because the blood has covered them and their lives have been spared. Make it so, we ask in Christ's name.